To uh, Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson uh, from the title of the show. Uh, that is the name of the podcast now, Willosophy with Will Anderson, because we had to re register it. Um, so some people still might have the old Willosophy on their iPhone app or their podcast app. Uh, erase that one, the new one, uh, where all the new podcasts will be is Willosophy with Will Anderson. Uh, this is one of the old episodes, though. This is one I recorded about a year ago with uh, the fabulous Ben Lee. If you enjoy listening to Ben, uh, check out his music, check out his uh, Twitter, and uh, send him a message and say that you heard him here on the podcast. Uh, I'm not going to um, bang on too much. Uh, it is Christmas Day, and I've got uh, Top Chef Last Chance Kitchen to watch. Uh, as Jesus would have wanted. So uh, enjoy this episode with Ben. If you want to see me live, uh, January 19th at the Sydney Opera House and the Concert Hall, I will be doing the last night of my uh, Illuminati tour, uh, the last shows ever of that tour, uh, two shows only, that one night, an early show, a late show, 7.30, 9.30, uh, support by Justin Hamilton, filming it all for a big special that'll be out next year. So uh, come along and be part of that. It's going to be awesome. And then, of course, my new show, Free Will, uh, is on sale in Adelaide, Brisbane and Melbourne at the moment. So if you want to get in for that... Uh, Find those tickets in all the usual places. Uh, okay, guys, uh, enjoy this episode with Ben. Welcome to Willosophy. I'm Will Anderson, and uh, this is what we're doing at the start now. I'm, I'm starting to get a like. This is five podcasts in now. I'm starting to work out what I'm doing. I don't have, still don't have any theme music. We'll get to that eventually. I'm still working out what the podcast is. But I, one thing that we are doing now is we're getting the guests to introduce themselves. So, who are you, guest? My name is Ben Lee. I'm. Um you want to hear about me too, or just my name? I don't know. I, I, I at the moment, it's your format. Well, this is the thing, Ben. I, I, I've, I opened that up because I yeah. like to hear what people say. Okay. Because I think it says something about someone in that. You know, do do you stop it? I'm Ben Lee. Yeah. Do you say I am Ben Lee and I am a? Yeah. It sounded like you were about to say. Well, that. I didn't. It sounded like that you were doing it. It sounded like it was going to need a little bit of a more meaty response. Right. You thought but, people were going to be disappointed with just my name's Ben Lee. It's just you. I'm just here for you. I thought you'd be disappointed. If you're like this is you made a big thing. You're like this is what we're doing now. No, it, it, let it be known that if it were up to me, I really would probably stop at Benley. So if you're comfortable with that, I am comfortable. We're going to be talking about the rest of it anyway. Right? No, and, and I like that. Okay, because good. it says to me immediately that perhaps you don't want to be defined by just one thing. That would be true. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, let's start with that then. Okay. Okay. So um, the whole point of this uh, podcast when I first started was I wanted to talk to interesting people about whether they had like an overriding philosophy or, you know, something, a lesson that they lived their life by or maybe a series of those things. Are you a person that that has a philosophy or, or does have something that's a kind of an overriding principle by which you live your life? I think I've gone through many. Yeah. I think part of being a person who's creative and inquisitive and exploratory and, you know, I, I've there have always been principles that have guided different periods of my life. I suppose a general sense of human decency and morality has kind of, um, I'm not afraid of that, that mm-hmm. has kind of coloured my 
approach to all the different chapters of my life in that I've never worshipped Satan. Right. I've never, I've never gone through. Um, but, you know, like I think some people do explore truly trying to be evil right. in different ways, and that's never really been an interest. I've kind of always been interested in, um, in opening and um, lifting up the human spirit and lifting up consciousness in opening my mind up and learning. So these are kind of general principles that I suppose have guided my journey. Okay. That's good. I like that for a start. That seems like a good starting point. So you can me. cancel out worshiping Satan. Everything right. else has been pretty open. I, at some right? stage I'll get someone on his worship Satan. <laughs> yeah. Just no, for balance. That. Yeah. In my yeah. early forties. Right. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I mean, we might get you back in 20 years exactly. and you're about to tell us about, you know what? Kicked in about 55 <laughs> really? worshiping Satan. It was such odd timing. <laughs> I had tried everything else. I'd given up on the humanity thing. It wasn't helping. I'd written a lot of great songs and people still weren't coming together. Where else is there to go? Right. Um, how, how early on do you remember having that sense of um, us being... Because it's, a, it's a, a theme that is constant in my work as well, which is the idea that we are in a society, that we are in a community, that we are in this together. And the best way to muddle through whatever the fuck is going on, which I don't think anyone has a real explanation for what it is. A lot of people have theories that might work for them mm. is to kind of, you know, remember that we're working together. Mm. But how, how early do you remember having that sense? Well, my parents were very uh, driven by sort of social welfare issues and charity. Right. And as far back as I can remember, they were always raising money for this cause or, you know, um, different yeah, different kinds of helping the disadvantaged in different ways. So it was always something that was very present in our household. Um, and something that you embraced, obviously, though. Yeah. You didn't have resentment to that. Because sometimes if you're raised in a household where people are very focused on helping others, perhaps as a, a child you can feel like you're missing out on the attention yourself. I think I've recently finally closed the door on my a period that probably went from about 19 till quite recently i'm 35 now which was this wrestling with my parents humanity right um, and i think that's what you're talking about um and i think i i finally reached some peace which is very easy to say on paper right but the actual processing of the fact that we are all human beings with problems and at some point it's beneficial to everyone to let go of punishing your parents for also being human beings with right. problems. But that, that's been a long time of processing that for me. So I guess what I'm saying is what you're asking, I did go through a struggle with that of trying to explain some of my family's deficiencies by blaming the things they did put their energy into, which in a sense is sort of arrogant because it presumes that I would have a better recipe for the way the family should have been run. Right. And that, oh, if my parents hadn't been so involved in helping others, that would have been energy put directly into me. But, but that's, I think that's um, not real. I don't right. think, I, I think human beings have a remarkable ability to be dysfunctional and deceive themselves and, we can cook up any possible recipe. This is a very soft blanket. I'm just running my hands over the dining table. Um, it's it's interesting because this uh, room I that we're in is still a little bit uh, empty, so it's a little bit echoey. Yeah. So I've done my best to oh, try. Oh, is that to... what this is a baffle? So. Yeah, it's just kind of like. Well, it's also disarmingly cozy. But it is. <laughs> I must admit, that I, I did notice that we were both kind of just here stroking <laughs> this said, blanket I on the maybe table. Maybe this top. is like an interview technique to lull the interviewee into sort of a feeling of comfort. I will need a. Couple 
cup yeah. of herbal tea and a soft Cash blanket. Cashmere shawl. Right. Now um, take me back to the womb, Ben. Take me back to the womb. But uh, but yeah. So so anyway, I um. So I, I want to ask on yeah. that. Uh, is being a parent yourself part of where that resolution comes from? Where you realise that. You know, your parents didn't probably like because I think when you're a kid, and I, I was having this conversation with my mother recently. I just turned forty, and uh, I was talking to my mum about the idea of that. You know, that she now has a son that's you know forty years old, and she said to me something that kind of blew my mind. Even though obviously, if I'd given it any thought, I knew this was the case. But I am now older than she was when I left home after high school. Right, and I know fuck all about the world. Like I mean, as in like I have a lot of theories and I'm constantly exploring and, you know, uh, examining my life. But I had finished high school and I'm not sure that I could even raise a kid now. Yeah. I mean, I find that amazing. But at the time we think they know everything. Yeah. But they're just people trying to struggle through, right? Absolutely. And also that I think a lot of what we do um, in our, you know, ignorance is we – pass judgment on others, including those closest to us, mm-hmm. as a way of protecting us from some of the brutal truths about existence. And for sure, I can see that at times criticizing my parents or criticizing, uh, you know, oh, the, look at how they are in their relationship. <laughs> you know, the stuff we do, like we're so judgmental of each right. other um, because it's much easier to do that than say, wow, look at how I am in my relationship and look at the way I'm raising my kids. And, you know, we have a lot of questions. We're never, we could always be doing better. We're always somewhat under the veil of ignorance and kind of self-deception. That's just the nature of humanity. As much as we try and look at, you know, my little daughter, Goldie, she said to me last year, she said, Dada, why can I see your eye, but I can't see mine? And I was like, you have just touched on the most important philosophical question about, how can we look at ourselves? Right. We can always see other people more clearly and their flaws than we can our own. Um, so I think part of it for me is just Okay, been, she's a genius. Get her on, she's, get her on the talk show circuit. Yeah. Introduce her to Oprah. Exactly. But so I think this idea that, um, that at a certain point of my own kind of maturing, I've started to be able to have little glimpses of my own flaws mm-hmm has allowed me to release some of that judgment of other people. Right. And 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 with your own flaws, like, yeah. I mean, we can go as deeply or not as deeply into this as you would like. Yeah. But I, I am fascinated by what people perceive their own flaws to be. Yeah. What, are, what, are, what are the things top of mind that you feel like? I, do you feel like you're dealing with things? Are you a sort of person who's going, here are some flaws of mine and I would like to be better at this. And yeah. so I'm, are you, do you go on that journey yeah, yourself? Yeah, I heard, I heard a story about... um. I think it was Benjamin Franklin. Um, it was one of the you know founding fathers of America, but that he made a list in his at a stage of his own maturing of his flaws, and he came up with twelve major flaws in his personality that were going to be an impediment to him having the kind of life he wanted. And he said, "I'm going to dedicate two months to the serious contemplation and analysis of each of these flaws." And at the end of the two years, he kind of felt that he'd made progress, and and it. It's a simplistic... Except his wife who was like, you know what his biggest flaw is? <laughs> exactly. All that fucking contemplation about his flaws when he should be doing the chores. Exactly. Get outside and chop some wood, mate. Exactly. Stop sitting around gazing at your navel about whether you're too selfish. <laughs> That's right. And, and look, I think there's... Obviously, it's a, it's a very... It's an oversimplification, an externalization of a process. But I, I do believe that taking a very honest 
um, accounting of our issues is pretty important if we're going to transcend them. So I suppose for me, as I'm, you know, I've now been married five years and been a dad for four and um, I'm sort of realizing that, and even in my friendships and collaborations, that I probably the biggest flaw that prevents me from kind of having the life I want to have with the intimacy I want to have is that I'm convinced I need to show everybody I can do everything myself. Right. And um, some a lo- all of that goes back to childhood. Um, no, no, but, but I, I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. Because I think that's something that you and I share. And it, it, at the start, it seems like it's a really positive thing. And it is in the and beginning. It is. Like when you're fighting for your freedom yep. to like get out of your country town or get out of your you know, middle-class Jewish day school or right. you know, whatever your particular challenge is, your ability to use your will and just make something happen is incredibly important. But then you're free yep. and lo and behold, you're not free. Because those voices are all still in your head and you're all still fighting imaginary enemies and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and I'm now surrounded by, you know, a wife and kids and dear friends and collaborators that actually want to help me. Right. And you don't I, have to do it by yourself. <laughs> and I don't perceive them as wanting to help me. Right. Like in my mind, I still see them as basically trying to get in the way of my process. <laughs> <laughs> like no matter how kind right. someone is to me, at some level, there's a part of me that's perceiving them as in the way. Right. And or even if they're not in the way, you're imagining when they will be in the way. Oh, exactly. Oh, this it's is like, fine now. I better nip this in the bud. Right. <laughs> um, and this is totally delusional. Yeah. And I'm realizing that the longer I'm in my freedom, in my adult life, and realizing how many people I have that do want to help and do love me and don't want to stop me, but I come into things with quite a defensive attitude. And in my earlier life i saw that externalized through conflicts quite often that i'd actually be in conflict um with people and i'd have a falling out with this person or i'd with my audience or with critics or with you know i'd I'd be in all these battles yeah and i didn't really see what that was until quite recently and i realized that's how i'm feeling inside like you need an enemy right if you're feeling like a fight you know so i'm kind of um i'm really looking at that and i'm really trying to not throw the baby out with the bathwater and realize, like we said, that my ability to get things done, like I have musician friends that can't finish their albums or they find it incredibly emotionally challenging or projects linger on for years. And I've never been like that. I've always been someone who, when I say I'm going to do something, I do it and you can rely on me. And that's a great quality. But the other side of it that kind of uses it to separate myself and basically is like, well, no one's really good enough because they're not doing it the way I want it done. And I better do it myself. And I mean, that's incredibly isolating. And I I don't think that's adding anything to my life. It's really interesting though because we were just talking um, <clears throat> about the fact that I was back in Australia and my friends threw me a surprise party. And uh, one of my friends said to me afterwards, it, it, there was two things about this surprise party that were amazing. Firstly, that I had planned it myself. Uh, years ago on my other podcast, Tofop, um, I'd had a conversation with my friend Charlie and he'd said, you're really hard to buy things for. You always would just go and get what you want. Like if you were ever going to have like a good present, what would it be? And I said, honestly, I just like a party at my own house with all my friends that someone else organized. Right. And then of course, I just forgot that. <laughs> and years later, um, this happened. And I learned two things on that night. Firstly, uh, the first thing that I learned was that the thing that I had said out loud was actually true. 
In the moment I walked down the stairs and there was like 120 of my favorite people in the world all in this room, yeah, yelling out surprise, I honestly was like, oh my God, this is exactly what I wanted. Because there could have been a moment where yeah. what you say out loud isn't actually what you think in your head. Right. Where I was just like, fuck, I wish they chipped in and got me a car or whatever, right, you know. Right. But the second thing was that I allowed them to... Sorry, I'm just quietly doing the math of 120 people buying you a car. Right. I'm like, oh, it's quite wealthy friends you got there. <laughs> well, a ca- lease. Got a new lease. To, Paid the first month. To be honest, yeah. a couple of people in the room would have do- been doing the majority of the heavy lifting. That's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think was actually the same case with the surprise party. (laughs) I feel like there was about three people who really paid for most of the bar tab. (laughs) Gotcha, gotcha. Um, But I, uh, the second thing was that I allowed people to show me love, which I don't think that even five years ago I would have been comfortable with. There were friends of mine who were there who were saying, we thought you were just going to walk back up the stairs and not come down. And I said, me five years ago, I think I might have because it wasn't on my terms and I wasn't in control of it, right? I would have done that. Because I think this is where it goes to. I was thinking about this on the night, which is, I don't demand a lot of my friends because I'm away all the time. Just to stay out of the way. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Just stop fucking up my life (laughs) by wanting to be friends with me (laughs) and hang out. That's time I could be not really working, but I imagine that I would be working. Uh, I've never demanded much of them because I can't be there for birthdays. You can't be there for, like, you know, weddings. A lot of the time you're on the road and you miss out on important occasions. So I've always thought it's unfair to then demand those sort of things of your friends. You know, for me to say, hey, everyone come and celebrate with me, you know, because, but it was, it was lovely. And, and that's, I think, is that exact same thing of like, I've always been so self determined. I've always been like, I'm going to make this happen. It's nice to kind of let other people in. Yeah. And especially like being married now, I really have someone on my team. I mean, she, like legally on your team. Yeah, legally, exactly. Like, you sign paperwork <laughs> and you are on each other's team. Yeah. But just, you know, like, I, I only also wants us to have a great life. Right. Like, there's no, she's, she's not, like her goals are not entirely different. <laughs> no. um, so, but it's amazing how dense we are. And, you know, a lot of people, because I've been so vocal about my interest in spirituality and inner work, and you know, I remember um, I did a panel at um, Splendor in the Grass this year, um, and one of the people on the panel was Dave Graney, who I think's hilarious yep. and funny, and very everything. funny guy. But he took a like deliberately adversarial, um, yeah, which yeah, sounds like Dave Graney, like, you know, <laughs> response to any idea of introspection. He's like, "Who's got the time?" And I got why it was funny, but. It's also extremely practical in that we all want to have a happy life. Right. What's getting in the way is us. Yes. No one's going to fix that for us except us. Yes. Like if we're not the ones to look at our problems and say, I'm actually ready to do what I have to do to get past that, it's just, it's never going to happen. The, one of the big um, problems, I think, in terms of the way we look at the development of the personality and the mind in kind of new age culture, like yep. within like yoga and health foods yep. and all that, is there's this idea of just go with the flow and it'll all work out. When you go deeper into um, different types of mystical texts and alchemical things, and you know, these guys that have really studied the process of transformation, you realize that that's an in- entirely false idea. And actually, if you let things go naturally, they decay. Right. That's the process of nature. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's change, there's minor change, but basically there's an amazing statement in Latin that I've always held on to around this that's um, 
um, opus contra naturum, which means this process goes against nature. To actually change and mature goes against nature. Uh-huh. Nature would have you actually stay in a cycle. Right. And do the same things to varied degrees, you know, summer, winter, autumn, you know, spring. And so those seasons that I just mentioned, not in chronological order. Um, <laughs> but, uh, oh, look, you know, yeah, these days, yeah, yeah, yeah. climate change, Who knows, people exactly. will be listening in the future. That was actually a prophecy yeah. of the, the kind of 2015. That's often one yeah. week. It's fine. <laughs> but, um, but, but I've kind of realized that all this is um, pointing to, the point I'm trying to make is about the immense amount of effort it requires to actually change, mm. that it is not going to happen without effort. And that's why I think it's, uh, it's important to be quite systematic in our approach to looking at ourselves. All right, good. So let's start at where you're at now yeah. and what you're doing in that regard. And we can work our way back and okay. sort of, you know, well, we'll go all, all over the place. There's no, there's no rhyme or reason. But I want to know what you're doing specifically right now. Like, you know, how you're addressing those things, what part of the journey you're on, what you're doing to kind of, you know, facilitate that journey at the moment. Yeah, Talk me through that. Yeah. Well, um, gosh, so much change has been happening. Um, in terms of my creativity, I'm working on two projects at the moment. I'm do- working on a musical of a book called Beers for Beer by Tom Robbins, okay. which has been a kind of amazing journey in terms of, I'm not a huge fan of musicals. Right. It's an amazing opening right now for songwriters like me because there's a generational shift and it, pretty much every intelligent singer-songwriter I know has been tapped to write a musical because right. <laughs> they need new blood. You yeah. know? So this opportunity came up and I fell in love with this book. I love Tom Robbins. The whole concept of the book is it's called A Psychedelic Love Children's Story About Alcohol. Right. It's like, like children's story about alcohol. Um, and um, it's basically about why do grown-ups drink from a five-year-old's perspective. Okay. And she steals her dad's beer and gets a visit from the beer fairy who takes her on a journey through time and space. And um, Tom Robbins has this whole theory about that yeast spores come from outer space, as they do, and wheat comes from the earth, and where they meet in fermentation is actually a portal to another dimension. Right. So it's really about how there is sort of a spiritual quandary at the basis of even our most sort of socialized consciousness expanding behavior that basically we want more, right? We want to see more. We want to look at life from a different angle and we've kind of gotten rid of all our rites of passage and any, you know, it, it, there is a lot to be said for the separation of religion from our political system and obviously all that sort of imposed morality that people don't choose to follow. But there's also we've also lost ritual we've lost the sort of poetry of society we've lost symbolism we've lost mythology a lot of stuff that was actually very formative for the human psyche so this show's all about that anyway and um and that's been a really interesting process for me because i'm i've been doing my work as an artist for 20 years professionally i started when i was 14 and i was thinking about this today that you know that thing that people say, I've heard like child stars, they talk about a per- part of your personality freezes at the age you first become famous. Yep. I didn't really like become famous at 14, but I got enough validation to make me go, oh, something's working. Right. And to sort of put that off the table for negotiation in terms of what I'd allowed it to keep right. changing. And um, to step into a totally new medium that I was really scared about, um, one for not understanding how it works mm-hmm. And also for just not knowing if I could do it. But then at the same time to say, well, there's obviously something in my work that they thought 
I'd be good at. So can I bring it in, but still be open to something radically new? This whole idea of the new has been really important for me at this point in my life in that, uh, um, so I'm working on this other album now. That's my, well, let's just, be, sorry. We'll, yeah, we'll yeah, get yeah, to that. Yeah, let's yeah. talk about the musical thing first while yeah. we're here. No, no, yeah. Okay. Talk about it. Yeah. Cause absolutely. I, cause yeah. I'm, I, I'm just even interested in the process yeah. of that. Like when you're sitting down to write something for a musical, did you, you said you weren't really into musicals. Do you just go, well, I'm not going to watch any musicals because like, you know, I'm just going to put what I want to put into this and make it my own thing from inside me. Well, I think or do you go away and you start like watching musicals to see what other people are doing and how they're structured and how they're put together? And I, I think both of those tendencies I'm trying to fight. Right. <laughs> in that they both imply a rigidness. And this is kind of where I was going with the idea about the new, that, for me to take either tack and say either I'm not paying attention to anything, I'm going to do it my way, or to say I know nothing, both of those actually don't embrace the reality of the situation. Uh And if I were to choose either of those, they would ask me to give up part of who I am. So I've seen my task as to actually try and hold and contain the complexity of where I'm at with this process. And one of those is that there is something within me that I have to say about this, both musically and lyrically. But the other is that I might need some help and some clues in getting there. So trying to balance both of these is really delicate. And it's been a lot of grappling. We're now going into the workshop stage of it and I'm now beginning to grapple with other people's visions of it, which is a different Man, Those thing, people but... have come away long to get in your way. Yeah, exactly. To bring They're you down. Way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I heard a story about Jarvis Cocker from Pulp uh-huh. years ago that I've, as much as I haven't have had a hard time... Well, I have adapted this in a sense that he liked battling with his record label because he always believed at the end of the battle a better product would come out of right. it. Right. So basically they would say, oh, cut the song down to three minutes. He'd say, I'm cutting it down to four. They'd meet somewhere at three and a half. And he had an implicit belief in the nature of intellects going at each other in that a more refined solution would come out. Right. And in a sense, I've embraced that with the pop song, meaning that the pop song requires tremendous compromise. Um, It's a commercial format. And while it's sort of in my... It's like it's in my bones because I've listened to so much and studied so much. It's not in my DNA in that the pop songs are relatively new format. And I think it's sometimes hard as an artist to say, well, why bother communicating? I just want to express myself. Um, And uh, I guess I'm trying to embrace a little bit of that Jarvis Cocker idea that somewhere in the process the truth will come out. I, I, look, I think that's that's a good way of looking at it, though, because often I think that you do need that little bit of, you know, grit to make the pearl or whatever it is, that thing, that force that you are acting against. And I think that's sometimes why you invent them in your own mind as well, yeah. is that you're like, I need to be fighting against an enemy. Quite, yeah. o- quite often, if I'm trying to express a point in comedy, the easiest way to do it is put the words in a dickhead's mouth. Like right. if you're trying to like... Rather than me getting up on stage and trying to express an idea and all its complexity, often I'll just have an idea. I'll have an argument with a dude I invented right. <laughs> to say these stupid things. That because you need an enemy to kind of spark it off to yeah. be creative. Yeah. I get that. I think sometimes with Hollywood directors, that the only bad thing about this uh, blanket <laughs> is that it keeps slipping off the table. It's so uh, often you find with Hollywood directors once 
they've got so much power that um, you know they can do whatever they want with their movies that their movies get worse. Yeah, because like there was something about the process of having to edit it of having to be more creative. One of my favourite stories is the South Park guys, Matt and Trey. I saw them talking about one of the most famous South Park episodes, which is um, uh, Tom Cruise in, oh, yeah. in the closet, yeah, right? Like that that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, originally, they just wanted to do some really generic Tom Cruise gay joke on the show. And their lawyers were like, no, no, you can't, you can't. And they said, well, what if we have him going around saying, I'm in a closet? They said, no, 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 he'll sue us. That's you. That's you. They said, what if he's just in a closet? And they're like, oh, yeah, no, no, I think we could get away with that, <laughs> which is a much more creative and interesting idea yeah. than the shit joke they were going to do in the first place. Yeah. Like it's this memorable, wonderful moment that came out of them having to, you know, be more creative. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I've, I was writing a song yesterday um, and it sort of tackles this idea of life as a battle, as a sort of nonviolent battle. You know, I really respond to this idea of sort of the spiritual warrior who is uh, – going to conquer through love and through being open and through being intelligent. And one of the things that I was sort of trying to address in the lyrics is that the sort of, there's this depression, this like seething sense of hopelessness that comes into our minds. And and as a society, say the way we're dealing, looking at the environmental issues, Mm -hmm. you know, we get pulled into this sense of there's nothing we can do. It's hopeless. It's hopeless. There's no room for genius in that. You know, like I've always believed that these situations, they require artistry Mm -hmm. and they require genius. And in all of our lives, we all are called to be artists. You know, whether it's someone who's the mum who's stuck at home with four kids trying to find room to take that 10 minutes to herself to tap into what's going on, it requires creativity. It requires juggling the calendar, you know, and our artistry, our innate genius is sometimes what these situations of pressure call forth if we can sidestep the uh, adversarial thing and make it, well, let me come up with a smarter plan. Right. Uh, yeah, I, it, look, and I do think that, um, yeah, particularly when it comes to things like the environment, mm. we're getting to the point where that's our only option. Yeah. Like, it's like, we really should be just like, look, if you've got a smart kid, can you get them on to working out how to solve this? Because we have fucked this up. Yeah, exactly. And also, and just the brooding that we all do individually and collectively, it really backs us into a corner. You know, like we, we really need to be thinking like more solution oriented right. rather than like, otherwise I think it just becomes a fulfillment of almost like a Old Testament apocalypse where we're just resigning ourselves to getting lost in fire and brimstone instead of the idea, like I'm a firm believer in rectification. And I think, you know, even like, you know, the idea of second acts in life and in show business, how that has such a it's a complicated idea and like we see John Travolta come back and it seems like a miracle, you know. Um, uh, that was a very, you know, topical reference. Obviously. That happened about <laughs> 20 years ago. But, um, <laughs> but, but my point is that um, we should be believing in that. We should be believing more in the impossible and right. more in acts of uh, just that we didn't see coming. Okay, I like that. So what? tell me about the second thing then. Yeah, well, the second thing is just this other new album that I'm making, which interestingly, you know, I've, the last couple of years I've become very interested in um, the dying process. So it came through the work I've been doing with Ayahuasca, and which is uh, 
it's basically a replication of the death process internally. Right. So, um, so explain more about that because I, I find this very fascinating. Yeah. So ayahuasca is a, um, a natural medicine from the jungles of um, South America, the Amazon and the surrounding regions. And it's, it was always used shamanically mm-hmm. to basically induce what you could call a mystical death experience. So these shamanic experiences would be one of death and rebirth. And there was a belief that whatever truth there is, is to be found in that moment when you let go of what you thought you knew and open up to something entirely unexpected. Uh And that's this idea of mystical death and resurrection, you know, which we see played out in various mythologies, whether it's like the resurrection of Christ or, you know, these different, um, these different myths in history. So this medicine, uh, Traditionally, you know, it's always used ceremonially with a teacher or a guide or shaman. It's not something people use, drink the ayahuasca and go to the club. Right. It's not, you know, it's a different. It's, it's, it's work. Right. We went to the big day out. We yeah. took a couple, no, <laughs> dropped a couple of ayahuascas at the gates. A, and there's a, famous, uh, there's a famous thing I heard recently where someone said, do you know how often people do ayahuasca recreationally? Once. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it, it's, that's not right. what it is. That's um, not what it's It's for. a deep confrontation. You know? what's, so, the, what's the actual process? What's the physical process of doing it? Like you how drink you drink it. It's like a tea like you, sort of thing. Yeah, it's a very sort of pungent tasting and you um you lie down or sit down depending on the circle you're working uh-huh. with and go inside and, it goes and like how long hours. does the actual five to seven hours right um, and when from your point of view is, is it a different thing that happens each time or is it a similar process that is like you know when i mean it's very hard for me to even ask the right question not yeah. knowing i'm basically no, it's more a, like dreaming it's like right. you could never know what dream you're going to have at night like uh-huh. do you remember as a kid trying to do that yep. and i actually worked out a system of somewhat controlling my dreams which is I hated a certain type of horror dream, you know, okay, it was like sure. kidnapping or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I realized if I think about it right before bed, I won't dream it. And I realized something which was to do with dreams are always from the unconscious. Right. They're never something you're conscious of. Like whatever you expect will not be the dream. Interesting. So um so all of these types of experiences work the same way in that it's impossible to predict what's in your unconscious. It's impossible to, to predict what the medicine will bring up. Okay. Know? So now when you're like, you're, you've taken it yeah. and you're in this process and you're surrounded by a guide or a teacher or somebody who's on the process with you. Is that right? Yeah. Are they also like doing the, the medicine or are they? Yeah, but they've, the, the, the shaman traditionally has sort of mastered the movement right. between these states uh-huh. of consciousness in the same way that, say a yoga teacher could show you, can move between showing you the stretch and teaching a student how to do it. Right. They've developed a fluidity between these states. So um, anyway, if people are interested in that, I made a record about it called Ayahuasca, Welcome to the Work. But but the, real, the reason I brought this up is it led me into, as I, I also did assisting with some ceremonies where I was, I wouldn't drink. I would walk around and just, if people need to go to the bathroom, help them, or if they need to bring them water, just an assisting in this job. And um, I admired and was awestruck by the vulnerability of the people that I was helping. And you really try and do by not doing. You kind of want to get out of the way because they're in an inner process. Uh So the last thing you want to do is like start chatting to them. You basically want to just assist them in being in the most serene state so they can do their inner work. Yeah. and I thought a lot about how really, wow, isn't that how we should be helping each other in life? Uh-huh. Like I remember hearing Paul F. Tompkins say once, 
He was praising a guy as someone amazing to talk to. He said, you know what he never says? He never says, you know what you ought to do? Right. <laughs> because that's the worst type of advice. Uh-huh. Um, the best type of support we can give each other is someone who just is a witness. So what you're saying is that we need to react to each other more like women react to each other. Exactly. Basically. We need to be chicks. Because, um, but, but it is kind of that No, thing. no, but, I mean, but, 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 that's, but that, people might misunderstand that because you can also see that image of women going, you got to kick him to the curb. And, oh, you know, yeah, that's like, true. It's really, but it's really about listening yeah. and creating space for people more than I guess the reason I was, I, the yeah. reason I was like joking about yeah. that was that I do think that men have a tendency to, in, particularly in relationships, try to problem solve yeah, when yeah. women often are looking for someone just to hear exactly. what they are saying. Exactly. And so so as I was go- I was thinking about this, this idea that... And when I say people- men, I mean me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, this led me into an interest in, um, in the actual dying process. Right. It's, now, it's- had you been interested in death before that? Are you a person who, like, does death hang heavily over you? I always hear people like Mark Maron talk about, or Woody Allen, or all these sort of people whose work is informed by this like idea that death looms large, you know, in their life. Whereas I've never been a person who particularly was worried or interested in death in that way. Were you a person who always had that sense of death or is this a new experience? I, I would say in a totally different way. Like the way like Mark Maron or Woody Allen talk about it is this like that looming thing. For me, it was like this invitation to this experience that right. no one has an answer to mm. that's waiting there. It's like, how could we not be talking about this incredible thing? Incredible because we can't understand it. Right. That's ahead of us, ahead of all of us. Uh-huh. And, um, and as I, you know, witnessed the ayahuasca experience for people, then I realized how in that moment of not knowing what's coming next, you would see the most beautiful sides of people emerge. Just this gratitude. You'd also see terror. Uh-huh. But in the grappling with that terror, people were very innocent. There was no blame. There was no like, there was no like, oh, I'm so scared of what's happening. And you know whose fault it is, that guy. It would just be like, wow, I'm scared. Right. I'm scared of my life. I'm scared of my death. Like people taking immense responsibility. And um, I started thinking, I am someone like where we started at the beginning, someone who wants to be of service in the world. And I said, I think I need to learn more about how to support people in this way. And something that came along in my life, I heard someone talking about it, is this thing called death midwifery. And it's basically the study of just as a midwife helps usher someone in, the mm. death midwife helps usher someone out. So right. I spent two years studying. I mean, it's, it's a much, uh, like, uh, to be honest, the consequences of getting it wrong. But you get repeat you, you get repeat customers with the birth midwife. Right. You don't get one with the death midwife. That's a good point. That's the thing. You know, it's like if you do it right there, yeah. they might come back and see you on the way out. Right. Um, I'm not going back to Ben Lee. I'm still alive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, uh, but so... So you so did anyway, a course. I became, yeah, and I became a, a, a deaf midwife and then I became interested in um, applying this in some way and I became a hospice volunteer, which is, uh, you know, you're talking about people in their last six months of life who varying degrees of consciousness and some people are almost in coma or dementia mm. or some people are totally intellectually present. The but, good um, news is 20 years from now when I've got Goldie on this podcast, she'll be like, <laughs> you know, he was never at home looking after me. He was always out doing work for other people. <laughs> exactly. Um, but so anyway, all of this is a very long way of talking about, I got interested in the role music plays uh-huh. in this process. And there's a thing called music thanatology, which is literally music for the dying. And I started studying whole new ways of playing guitar, um, imitating the harp, 
because ha- that music thanatology is created on the harp. Right. Um, and what type of music do people respond to when they're on their deathbed? And what type of music do people respond to in ayahuasca ceremonies? And in, in general, in these vulnerable altered states, what can we learn by what music people are responding right. to? And um, anyway, so I started this project very much with that headspace of I want to make music like like a like that type of music like almost music to die to right and I started writing it <laughs> which is not something that you tell a record company PR person <laughs> oh yeah what's your target market <laughs> people that are about to die but I would think of it in terms of not just old people dying no. but like we're all dying all, we're all dying yeah so we're all we all need music to die to because yeah. we're all in this moment we're dying but um what happened is as I allowed it to evolve was it became – it looks like it's becoming a pop record. Right. Um, and I would not call it music to die to. Um, but I guess where I'm going with all of this is that that's what it was yesterday and today it's becoming something different. Yeah. And that's going to keep happening until I record it. Right. And then when I record it, there's still the mixing process. And then there's the cover art. And then I'm going to be talking about it to people. I'm going to start talking differently one right. day to the next because my life keeps changing. And but, then I, and you will learn stuff about it as well, though. Like often yeah. someone will tell you something that they got out of it or they saw in it that you didn't even realize was there yourself and you'll exactly. incorporate that into the story. And so this whole chapter of my life has been about having the courage to step into the new. Uh-huh. Like today is not yesterday. This conversation has never happened before. If I I was on someone else's podcast last week, there's probably a part of my mind that came in assuming, because we're arrogant, our ego, you know, we assume we know the process. And to actually show up and chat to you and be open to where this goes requires being willing to step into the new. Okay, that's a big part of my creative process. How do you, because I think there would be people out there who are listening to this, who who, who are people who, who don't, who find that hard, whatever job they do, whatever they're doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How do you open yourself to the new? I mean, I, I've moved overseas to work and yeah. I guess like in a big way, that's something that people can look at and go, okay, you've made a big decision in yeah. your life. But it also requires a series of much smaller decisions that I don't talk about public or yeah. that people don't see. Yeah. And each one of those requires that courage to yeah. kind of do things as well. And I have days where I'm like, I don't, I don't want to do this or how do I do this or how do I leave myself open to this? How do you deal with those things? I'm going to use a very controversial word in the, uh, you know, modern secular culture and that word's prayer. And it's a word that in a sense has been misunderstood, hugely misunderstood. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, you know, Rumi, the poet Rumi, he talked about, he was a Sufi poet. From the Cosby poet. Show, right? The little kid from the Cosby Show. Right? <laughs> no, that was Rudy. <laughs> now, Rumi was a, a Sufi poet, um, I think Persian maybe or Turkish, and um, and he said something about he. I forget the exact poem, but the line was something to the effect of he used to find life boring, but now there are two living within him, and he one turns to the other in the morning and says, "What shall we do today?" Mm. And the point is that in all types of mystical thought or psychological thought there's more than one thing happening in us at any given point. Right. Anyone that you have these like staunch materialists who are like, well, the world is what you see and I'm Will and I'm Ben and that's it. And I don't change from one. We know at a cellular level, that's not true. I mean, this is something the Buddhist, like the Dalai Lama has been amazing about because he's encouraged these discussions between factions and Buddhism to keep up with science. And 
you know, the idea that our cells are constantly renewing each other, renewing themselves, I mean. So right. from 24 hours later, you have an entirely different set of cells within your body. Well, and there's a period of time where basically your whole body is different, isn't it? Yeah, like, exactly. And so you, you are technically not the same person you are not as the you same used person. to be. Now, there was a, a, the head of the British psychoanalytic board in the 1940s or 50s with his name called Bion, and he said the hardest thing about therapy was that I have the patient come into me and there's a part of me that wants to tell me this is the same person who came yesterday or last week and it's not. It's not. It's not. And I have to counter my arrogance with that. But the Buddhists were saying this for thousands of years. They were saying, you're talking about this vase of flowers as if it's a vase of flowers and it isn't. It's energy and cells and they're moving and vibrating and there's no separation to the table that's underneath them. And, you know, so this is a whole process. So the idea of prayer for me is an acknowledgement that there is a process occurring within our psyche and that there is not just one Ben in me. Mm-hmm. I see it as there are, you know, I've always liked the metaphor of the, uh, the Christian New Testament where they say, he says, um, they describe Satan, back to Satan. And, um, Here we and, go. And so says, I knew he was too big on yeah, that. Yeah. I've never worshipped <laughs> Satan. No, but they say Satan is legion. Uh-huh. Meaning, like, there's not just one dark part of us or one dark thought. Right. There's 10,000. Right. There's 10,000 lies in our head that we have to muddle through. Now, equally, there are many intelligent parts of us. Uh-huh. And I sort of see it as okay, there's my external personality, and I have all these flaws and I'm all the stuff I'm working on. And then there's sort of a good part of me, what I would call probably like a, a, a pure personality that's. It's almost like if you cut your finger, it starts healing. There's something within you that's just moving back towards health. And I think of that as kind of the essence of what I am. Like even if I'm not totally in contact with that, there's a part of me that wants what's good for me and wants what's right and wants to make healthy choices. Now there's also within me a goal. Right. Meaning there's a perception of what that looks like, of what truth is, of what love is. And I see it as like an internal journey of this essence, this uh, good part of me that wants goodness towards what's good. And all of that is happening inside of my consciousness at every moment, just like it's happening in yours. So I view the, the idea of prayer as a question asked by the part of me that wants goodness moving towards what's good. And it's just saying, whatever I perceive you as in there, of what love is, what art is, what beauty is, what, you know, sublime thought, what we feel when we see the Godfather, what we, what we understand, like what the, the heights of human accomplishment, that's inside me too, you know? And there's a part of me saying, what can I do today to bring me closer to you? And I think part of the problem with the idea of God is it was so degraded and contaminated through, you know, organized religion um but there is intelligence out there we've all had experiences where like you had with your birthday like you perceived it as oh your friend remembered it but what you basically said was you put something out there and a few years later it happened right there is an intelligence there's a cosmic intelligence there's a collective unconscious and i for me the way i open up to the new is by assuming that i don't know Okay, but uh, okay. Now I want to know about this because yeah. to me, I mean, you, you're seeing from my hymn book on this right, stuff. Right, this right. is like so. 
I want to look at this from the outside. Often when I start to talk about the things that you're talking yeah. about, I can see at least one or two people's eyes start to glaze over and go, fucking shut up, you wanker. Yeah. Like, do you care what the perception of you is from the outside about, you know, the things you're talking about yeah. and the journey you're on? And if so, how do you balance that? Is it, are you less concerned about those things as you get older? Mm. Um, is it the same as it's always been? I guess I'm, I'm just asking about external validation or external yeah. opinion and how that, uh, you know, how that influences the process. That well, you're I, on. I totally, um, am vulnerable to criticism and, um, uh, Teasing. Right. <laughs> I don't know what else do you call it. No, no, but that's what, what it is. Teasing. teasing. Um, I think bullying seems too bullying, far. Yeah, bullying's a bit far, isn't it? Particularly if you're a public figure, yeah, I yeah, always yeah. feel like <laughs> you're, being you're not being yeah. bullied. Yeah. You're being but, teased. But being a laughing stock, being right. you know whatever it is. Um, because but, if you put your, you've been a person like you were saying, and who's been publicly well known since you were young. And one of the great things I was thinking about this today before you came over was one of the things that I. There was part of me when you first like came out, like you know when 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 you first came out. That's yeah. how, that's how to drunk. But but when when Noise Addict first came out, yeah. I remember. Um, uh, I, I wish I, we, I wish I were him. That yeah. was the song. Right? Wish I was. I, I, the was, him. I, wish I was version. him. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, and I remember that was the first time I kind of like you were on my radar. We didn't know each other. You were just you know, and I was like. That would be great. It would have been great to be like 14 years old and be in a band and like have like, you know, people like Sonic Youth and the Beastie Boys know who you are and blah, blah, blah. But now I look at myself as like on the artistic journey that I've been on and I'm glad that YouTube wasn't around until I was 30. Because I'm glad that none of the shit that I did from when I started doing comedy at 21 to basically when I'm 30 is stuff that people – I always have people go, I remember that radio show you did. It was brilliant. I said, you know why you remember it was brilliant? Because you can't actually listen to it. <laughs> That's right. Because if you could actually listen to it, you'd realize how much of it was just shit. That's and right. And some of the good bits you remember were brilliant. But so you were in the public and everything was on record at a very formative point in your life, mm-hmm. which means that you're also going to get criticism but if the you good are, thing the, the good side of it because you're absolutely right meaning the daily humiliation that's possible by people tweeting hey remember this right. <laughs> it's like that's part of my life um the the upside of it is that once you are i read this great thing with what jonah hill felt when he did the um james franco roast and basically everyone teased him about his weight uh-huh. that for someone he was really wounded emotionally in high right. school about that and he was. This was his worst nightmare. Right. Like on national, on national TV, TV. By movie stars, and, by, and he went through it. He was like, "It can't be worse." Right. And there is something great about as a public figure if you can weather the storm uh-huh. of being basically told. I mean, I've been told, as I'm sure you have, um, because this is just part of the thing of being a public person. That basically you don't have a right to exist. Almost oh, like yeah. like it would be better if you were dead or oh, disappeared. No, still, or, still every know. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you think like. No one could ever say anything. Okay, maybe it would be worse if it came from like a close family member. Right. <laughs> like that's the one thing that would be worse, you know. But pretty much that is up there amongst the worst things you could ever hear and we've heard them. Yeah. And at that level when you realize you're still standing, right. I view it as as far as this stuff about consciousness and uh, my honesty about how I perceive it, it's a changing honesty because it's a changing truth, is that I truly believe that if you want to be an artist, you have to be answerable to a higher moral code 
than just what do people like or dislike. Mm -hmm. When I look at the artists I admired, um, not all of them got the success. Some didn't even got it after they died. Some never got it at all. And that is one of the realities, but that's not why you do the work. You do the work because of this thing that's in you that allows you to perceive what we could be. And that's what I'm calling this being thing that's in there, this goal and what is beautiful and what is harmonious. And to me, what's interesting about comedy is that there's so many types of comedy, but at its most elevated form, it reveals like a harmony and a humility to our experience that we can laugh at the not knowing within this like thing. We're in this thing and we don't know what it is. And the person who can laugh, like not in a cruel way, but laugh at themselves is so dignified, you know? And so I, 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 I think we have to answer to something higher than public um, perception of us. So what, what is that though? Like I know you, you mean you've spoken very generally about it. Do you have a sense of what that thing actually is? Is it just something that comes from within you or is it something that you think is present in everybody as part of the universe? Well, from a, you know, from a quantum physics perspective, there is no in you and out of you. Right. There, there is, I would call it in the interior because it saves us getting into an old story of religion that, leads to holy wars, right. <laughs> you know, um, jihads and stuff like that. But but there is a truth within each of us that has been called God. It's been called Buddha. It's been called Atman. It's got, you know, every culture has a different way of describing it. But it's a fire. And there is a fire that um, that wants to destroy us and love us at the same time. And I think we can all feel it in our hearts. And it's not about security and it's not about achievement in this world and it's not about material stuff. But when you experience the art made by an artist who is in contact with that inner fire, it's transformative and it's sublime. You know, the interesting thing about um, the process is, and it, it touches on something you were just talking about, which is I did an interview recently. It was a 20-question thing. A guy has a blog and he asks different people 20 questions. But the way that he does it, instead of sending you 20 questions, he will email you a question and then you will email him back the answer to the question and then he will respond to that question and then ask you another question, like an actual interview. Hmm. Except that because of uh, the fact that I was traveling overseas uh, there was a bit of a personal tragedy in the middle of it and it ended up being over a period of nearly seven weeks that it took me and I read back as as, as we were finishing this thing and I realized that how much my answers were because I answered it sometimes you know in the morning before getting on a plane sometimes I'd answer it while drunk after a gig giddy late at night sometimes I was flying back to Australia for a personal tragedy sometimes I was in the middle of this room we're in now but you know writing it on a cardboard box that was my only furniture and I realized how much even those things informed the answers that I gave to each of the questions how much your environment you know and that's only over seven weeks and it's me answering questions about myself right but if we did this tomorrow or if we did this again in six weeks and I asked you exactly the same questions you know chances are that you would have you know, you may be talking about the same broad th- themes, but you might be sharper on some things or more determined about some things or more vague. You know, it might be like, oh, I thought this thing last week, but now I'm not so sure because right. it's, and it's constantly changing. Now, I think some people 
find that incredibly confronting. Like when I, when you think about you know organized religion, traditional organized religion, and the worst of it, you, not the yeah. nice bits of it, the yeah. good bits of it, the bits of it that people have responded negatively yeah. to. It's often people who I think don't want to be challenged by having to constantly reassess your thoughts on things. Look, I, it's I like, agree. Here are my ten rules. They're the rules. I'm sticking by that because life is simpler yeah. if I can just believe that this one thing is true and I don't have to worry about and anything this is, else. And this is such a major problem with the way we've interpreted the amazing teachings that have come to us through these amazing beings like the Buddha and Jesus Christ and to me and Moses. These beings all had the same message, which was about an infinite presence that could be contacted if we choose to make contact with it, but it requires sacrifice. And I think that's what you're talking about, that you have to give up your what you knew or the way you think life should run or what it should be like. And I think to me, that's what Jesus is talking about. He's like, nobody who stays with their mother and father can also follow me. I mean, to me, that is a sublimely esoteric teaching about you have to give up what brought you here to have a moment right now. Right. You have to, you know? And um, I think, you know, I've felt a lot of pressure in the past to defend things that I'm now realizing I don't have to. What sort of things? You what know, do you like mean? my whole thing in the 90s of like, I'm Australia's greatest songwriter. Whatever, and right. I've gone through so many <laughs> so types of analysis and explanation of that in interviews of like, well, I think I was this, I think it was that. It was like, you know what? I don't know what happened. Right. I honestly don't know. It was something I had to go through. Uh-huh. I'm through it. Right. <laughs> I feel different now. I wish I had a more interesting answer for you. Yep. It's like a teenage rebellious period, you know, like we each go through these things and their rites of passages. Why did you fall in love with that person? Why did you... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer. It's like life happens. It's unfolded. My job now is to try and be as conscious in the decisions I make according to my values that I have today. And I, I'm, I'm kind of done with thinking I have to be this unchanging guy that can explain and stand up for something from 15 years ago that I don't have any interest in putting energy into. Also, I I feel like this is one of our big problems when it comes to things like politics is that we demand of our politicians that they, you know, the thing that frustrates me almost like the most in any political debate is when people are like, well, you said in 1974 that blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, unless you don't have any information, like unless you've got no information, they've changed their mind since then. Right, right. But like, fuck, in 19... Well, uh, you know, let's say it was like 1985, I thought Wham! were the best band in the world, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, but it'd still be, it'd be sad if I still thought that was the case, yeah, right? Yeah. And I think the same with politics. I think the same with your life. I mean, it would be sad if you were still the same person That's that right. you were back but, then. But we bring it on ourselves by promising to be. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like that's I do know the, what you mean. Politics is a clear example of that. Like they're held accountable because they stand up going, if yeah. I'm elected, I will do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And as adults now, we've watched enough of these guys come and go that you go, they're not going to do any they're of it. They're not going to do they're any gonna of They're going to do what they have the ability to do according to their political inclinations or motives at that time when it comes up. And they're going to, they might not, they might even want to do it and they're right. not going to be able to do it. It's like, so. For me, I'm interested in – now, it's interesting where we get into there are commitments. You know, there is marriage and there are business contracts right. that we have to uphold. But I think we have to uphold them 
with a certain type of um, realism about who it is that's making the commitment that I, I'm going to do my best to uphold my commitments, but I'm also not going to pretend to understand who I'm going to be tomorrow, right. let alone in 20 years from now. And I think what's interesting about people hear about that type of an idea and they think you're basically saying you're giving yourself a, to walk out of marriage when it gets too difficult or whatever. Whereas I think the truth is I heard a great uh, story once about in families that had the most fluid emotional dynamics they often didn't have set places at dinner tables and breakfast tables. Okay. Did you have set places at yours? Um, no, I don't think so. So you didn't did. sit at the exact same? No. I did. Uh, my family did. A lot yeah. of families did. And they're actually ones that are quite dependent on roles. Okay. In a sense. And, um, and so you would think, like the argument against what I'm saying is that, well, if you let people sit wherever they want, who's going to know where they want to sit? And suddenly there's going to be anarchy. And same with like, well, if you tell people that they can't make a promise forever, then they're just going to leave their marriages. Whereas I think what you'd actually find is given the humility and the realism of saying, I am a changing being and I don't know who I'm going to be tomorrow can I marry you as a changing being who doesn't know who they're going to be tomorrow? And can we continually reassess and find a way to make it work? You can actually find a really successful long-term marriage within that I think that's construct. what, But I think that's what terrifies people externally. Yeah. It, like is that idea of, well, if I change or yeah. if they change, maybe – I think maybe it's more if they change. Yeah. Like then maybe there's no room for me in this anymore. And who am I and, if yeah. they change their role? Because my role. Right. Because yeah. I've defined myself partly through who they are. Yeah. But if I want to change, does that change the way that I feel about them? Are they going to be able to change with me? Will we both change and we'll change – to an apart thing. Yeah. Like I think that's yeah. why change does terrify people. Yeah. And it must be on a career sense, if you want to do something different like to what you've done previously, you're always going to – there's going to be part of your audience who are, you know, to put it like in a very blunt way, I like your old stuff better than well, your new stuff. I kind of think like for me, I've never been afraid to change. I always changed. And now I'm a little frustrated because I'm 35. I've been making records for 20 years. I would like – an audience that can stay with me a little more. Right. Like, and it's not the audience's fault in that radio doesn't play it mm -hmm. if it's changed. So then the audience doesn't even get the chance to respond. I get tweets all the time going, oh, did you put a record out last right. year? And, you know, most people don't know I put a record out last year. Granted, it was a fringe subject matter. Ben but, put a record out last year. <laughs> but this you know, podcast is listened to by a lot more yeah, than a lot of radio stations. Dude, this so. podcast <laughs> is listened to by more people than bought the record, that's for sure. But, um, but the point is that, like, you know – why can't we change? Right. And why can't we, like at a certain point as an artist. But that's I, what you want from your audience. Like I've, I say this quite a lot. Yeah. It's like the ones who don't let me change, fuck them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, you can have, it doesn't mean that you can't like the thing that you used to like. Yeah. But when anyone ever says to me, I want you to go back to this, please bring back yeah. that. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm glad that you like that. And I love that you still remember it like that. But that's done. Yeah, I'm going my own. I'm going my own. But look, I'll, I'll bring up another. Oh, sorry, sorry, I was just going to oh, say, sorry, go ahead, PJ Harvey is yeah. an artist that I really admire. And yeah. the reason that I admire, and I was trying to explain this to someone the other day. Oh, I, was, I was talking about Arcade Fire. I'd just gone and seen Arcade Fire. And a journalist asked me about 
because they're, they're changing. Yeah. Like Arcade Fire are a group at the moment who are changing. Yeah. And if I was honest with you, yeah. like there's part of me that goes, I don't think they've quite, like I thought they were almost like the perfect band. Yeah. And now they're changing and I don't like it quite as much as, I still like You've it. You've still got Jamiroquai. Right. <laughs> but I like, I, I really like that they want to change. Yeah. And I'm going to be, like, I want to be an audience member that's like, no, 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 I applaud you for going forward. Yeah. In the same way as Radiohead did or whatever, I, I applaud you for wanting to change. And yeah, you're going to lose some people, but I want to stick with this and see how it changes. Because with PJ Harvey, this is the one that I wanted to mention, sometimes she'll put it out an album that I'm like, this is not for me at all. Because yeah. you've learned to play piano and yeah, you've yeah. just written these, this is not what I, but I, I fucking dig that you did it. Right. And I'll like, next time you put something else out, I'm going to buy that as well and say what you did that time. Okay, well, here's the flip side though to yes. that. And this is something else I'm working through at the moment, which is that how much of the desire to change comes back to where we originally started, which is the I'm, I don't need anybody. Right. I can do it myself. And what I'm starting to realize is that- yeah, That's interesting. Is that, okay, how can I be most useful in the world? That's yep. another thing, uh-huh. right? And I think there's a lot of amazing experimental music out there that I love. I listen to instrumental music. I listen to classical music and different cultures, um, you know, indigenous music. I think what- people like most about me uh-huh. is that I write pop songs and they like, they feel they're romantic right. and optimistic. And they, um, it's like, it's like you're in a transition with this podcast. Like this could actually lead you into a whole new career. You never know that. You know what I mean? Like you could end up becoming the Barbara Walters. Like right. you do serious interviews and it's, you, ne- you never know where these you things never start. Know. You never know. Like you start with an idea. You yeah. start with like, I mean, I did this cause I just, I mean, to be honest, I just like to have these sort of conversations yeah. with people anyway. But if you have a microphone, people are more willing to come over to your house at 10 o'clock yeah, in the yeah, morning yeah. and do it. And, look, and you always will – that will always be part of you. But you might – it might not go anywhere. Right. And you might go, you know what? As a general principle, what people want from me is to be funny. Uh-huh. So if I throw that out just to be contrary, am I – slowing my progress with uh-huh. what I could contribute to the world. Right. You know, so that's kind of a question I'm asking and I'm sort of re-embracing the pop song at the right. moment. We, we all wanted Michael Jordan to keep playing basketball. Yeah. you know, like, I mean, We were like, good on you that you wanted to play baseball, but come on, mate, and you're like good you at said, basketball. And like you said, good on him, you know, yeah. because it does take courage to do that. But I'm also interested in this other side of the equation, which is do you want people to think you're brave? Is that a big part of it? You know right. what I mean? Like, I think I do. I think uh-huh. I've had a side of me that I'd like, I like the image of the right. uncompromising artist. Yeah. I think that has flattered my ego. Yeah. And even when people went, I don't get what Ben Lee's doing, I've kind of been like, oh, yeah, right. yeah you don't, do you? Yeah. yeah you got right. your conservative singers, you know what to get from them on the major labels and all that. And like, it's quite immature, uh-huh. you know? And so I'm trying to kind of explore both sides it's of this. Very interesting. You know, though. where I want to, I want to offer something to the world. Right but I don't want to be shackled down by it. Uh-huh. And somewhere in this, I feel for me right now, is the next step. Somewhere in me saying, how can I take the gifts that people have responded to and yet bring a new energy to them and bring something to me that allows me to actually feel free within them and not a performing monkey? Oh, man, that's really, it's very interesting. Um, so... Uh, take me back to when it first started. How, where, where, where did music come from in your life? Just in my family, um, my parents 
you know, listen to music. They didn't listen to a ton of music, but they listened to it sort of, they really enjoyed it. Like they right. put in like John Denver in the car and Peter, Paul and Mary and my sisters had, you know, just the types of bands they had in the 70s. They were listening to like Roxy Music and Fleetwood Mac and that was around. And um, my grandmother really forced me to play piano, essentially. She was like, just give it two years. Come on, be a good, just the Jewish two years right. of piano, you know. So <laughs> I did I did it and... um. I am grateful, you know, she made me do that. And um, it's in the lineage, you know, it's in the family tree. There's a lot of music. But it wasn't something that was, I'm going to raise a family of musicians. My parents were certainly not like that. Um, and But where does, yeah. like, where does the, I mean, is it cockiness or where does the drive or where does the, I don't know, um, the spirit like to think that you can create something in your teens and put it out to the world? Where, yeah. does, where does that come from? I think it's fairly delusional. Right. Um, in the, Which it, also, by the way, like I think is overlooked sometimes as like being the first step of creativity. Yeah. Well, I think you, if you look <laughs> at things most of the time, if you weren't a little delusional. Yeah. Like, I mean, in my job, the arrogance to think that you can walk on stage in front of a room full of strangers and just amuse them with nothing more than your words. Yeah. Like now I've done it enough that it still doesn't work all the time, but I've done it enough to go, well, there's evidence that I can do this. Right. But the first time that you walk up, you're delusional. You are delusional. And you've you, got to be. Well, you've got the courage to envision what's possible, not right. what is. Right. It's not, it's not the reality. No. But you think it could be. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is something that I've kind of continued to battle with, that some of that ability to fantasize and ability to imagine imagine is really helpful uh-huh. and some of it is actually out of touch with reality yeah um so i don't know i just um i i was kind of secretly miserable uh-huh. in school um, i did well at school but i i didn't care about it i wanted to learn from life um what was it that you do you can remember what you didn't connect to was there like there was was there something particularly about school that just didn't connect with you cuz I, I think education yeah. in itself is very interesting like what the role of education yeah. is how you're defined by what you learn at school it was sort of non-experiential that's the only right. thing i can i can point to in that i still feel the same now as an adult in that you meet people that have read books about things and then you've read people that have experienced the things. Mm. And it's a very different product than what you come out with at the end of the day. They might say the same things, but the wisdom with the person who's experienced it. And that's kind of what I was touching on back with the rites of passages and the rituals that I think traditionally we as a society, you know, like even like the bar mitzvah, you know, which is like, you know, Jewish rite of passage, it was designed to actually be an experience that isn't just like something you read a book about, mm-hmm. but that at 13 you are ready to step into the community and you actually have to do something, you know. Right. And these types of shamanic initiations where kids would be sent into the forest and fasting and, you know, experiences were a big part of how we were meant to grow. And, look, I love reading. I mean, I'm an avid reader, Um I really believe in intellectual development, but it should parallel experiential development. That's know? really yeah, okay, um, that's interesting. Yeah. So cuz I mean as a parent, yeah. like you've got to think about how you educate 
yeah. your child, you know, and, and how the school system yeah. will educate your child and what you will be wanting and hoping, demanding of well, that. Well, and you're dealing with, like, lesser of evils, basically, that, like, any system... Look, as humans, like any system we create has a lot of problems to right. it. So the schools are the same, but... But also the problems, yeah. like also that idea again is if you had had, if you'd gone to a perfect school yeah. where they encouraged everything yeah. about what we're talking about, would you be here now? Mm. Like, you know, was some of those frustrations of what you weren't getting from that what made you go out and seek them externally? It's it's hard to know what the balance of that is. It is. And with our kids, you know, the aim is actually not to replicate. I don't – if Goldie only ends up where I am right now, I'll – like, I don't mean in terms of my career. I mean emotionally. Yeah. I'll be disappointed. Right. I think it's her job to go further. I think it's her job – to rebel in a profound sense, not in a way of like smoking cigarettes, but like really to challenge my ideas and to go with the new, you know? And so I think it's complicated as parents because we're kind of like, we're sort of building a bomb that is going to destroy us right. when we're raising children. We're basically, if you encourage your children to think for them, I mean, I had something recently where, um, my daughter, they did a survey at school about do you believe in aliens? And they, they sent home a piece of paper and it was like, yes. And it listed every single kid in the class except under the no one was Goldie. Right. And it was really interesting because I do believe in, uh, right. uh, you know, I don't say aliens, <laughs> but I do believe the odds of us being the only ones in right. all the many millions of galaxies. Yeah. And obviously she doesn't know that. She doesn't. Have, but I really applauded her ability to think for herself because that, is what is going to, like we were talking about before with the environment, going to take us somewhere we haven't been. And it's scary as a parent because, look, we all, every kid at some point of their development turns to their parents and says, you didn't do a good job. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I will be on the receiving end of that. But I hope it's with the spirit of do better. If she does better, then it was all good, you know? Uh, yeah, I find that really, really interesting because I, I, I do think that often the things that define us can be both positive and negative. Like, you know, you can do things to prove a point against someone who told you that you couldn't do it. Yeah. You know, sometimes people can be too encouraged. Like reality television shows are filled with people who are clearly too encouraged yeah. by their parents. Like, you know, who've never – like, you're the best singer in the world. Yeah. Oh, it turns out you're not. Yeah. People have been lying to you. But even in that, you're like, well – I would want to encourage my kids and tell them to pursue, you know, something that was fun and good as well. It must be a confronting thing. Well, it's also, but that kind of thing strikes me as there's a lot of delusion and fantasy in the parents. I hope to say, I love it because you did it. Not I love it because it's the greatest piece of art ever Uh made. And I Uh think at that point, parents get delusional and they encourage delusion in their kids. Like, I am allowed to love a little scribble my daughter does because she made the scribble and she right. gave it to me. It was a gift. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. Love you. It. But I'm not going to tell you it should be hung right. in the National Gallery tomorrow because uh-huh. that's not true. Yeah, okay. That's, that's a, that is a good difference. Do you think actively about your parenting? Is it something that you uh, just are instinctive about or is it something that you genuinely like – you know, sit down and do you read about parenting? Have you read like, you know, is this part of you know, the journey that you're doing with the other stuff? Does your parenting come into that or is it something that you just try to feel out? I, I more just feel out now. And also, you know, I, I have a wife and we do it as a team. Like yeah. We help each other. So 
I think the important thing that I'm struck by in all of the stuff that I've been learning is just that if you don't create room for certain conversations, they're not going to magically happen. Meaning if you want the type of bond with your kids where, for instance, my parents never asked me that I remember about what dreams I had. I mean, literal dreams. Uh-huh, yeah. um, I could now say, oh, they didn't understand the unconscious. They didn't understand what information <laughs> they could be getting and, you know, whatever. But the point is they didn't and they didn't right. care. And so we never had those conversations. I'm interested in it. And I can, I also believe I can learn a lot about the kids from the, even if it's not like I'm just going, well, what this means is that. But for me as a parent, who's trying to look after these children, if they can tell me their dreams, I can get a sense of what's scaring them and what's exciting them. And I can adjust my behavior and the things that we're doing as a family going, huh, I don't think Kate, my stepdaughter even realizes how scared she is about going into high school. Uh She's in sixth grade. So that's then a conversation that we can sit with, not, not in relation to the dream, but I can say to her, hey, how are you feeling about it? We haven't talked a lot about it. So for me, I'm interested in the clues that I can get from the kids. And, so, and similarly, with all these discussions about consciousness and about deeper connection with yourself, you as the parent have to create space for that to happen. And I do think that the media... And the voices out there are so loud that... I mean, particularly, I think, for girls as well. Like, I mean, the messages for women about what's... I mean, the interesting thing to me, we'll take it back to pop pop music for a minute, just because there's been a lot of awards on recently. Even seeing someone like who's such a, like, seems to be such a big female role model like Beyonce still has to kind of get in her underpants and dance around. I don't know, maybe I'm getting older. Like, because I'm guessing I, I like seeing beautiful women dance around in their underpants, yeah. I guess. But, but there's another part of it that's just like, can't we just have not that message or yeah. the Kim Kardashian message or the Paris Hilton message or the, I mean, they, particularly in this town, like yeah. you're growing up in this town, yeah. that, that must be something that you're at least conscious of or aware of what messages are getting to the children, right? The relationship between sexuality and authenticity is like an incredibly complex minefield in terms of navigating what's been put out there. Um, Cause we are basically told we're all, you know, our job is to seduce each other. Uh-huh. And um, to me that doesn't, you know, it might be a step in falling in love or, yeah. in, you know, like as a performer, you have to somewhat know how to seduce the audience. Oh, and look, and, and, um, and I get it. There is something that's, yeah. I mean, the like, amount of- it's like a feather. It's not right. the whole hat. Right. You know, and, and what I, <laughs> I kind of see is like, it's so you learn a couple things about as a woman, the way to put on makeup and like how to wear a pretty dress. It's enough. It's like to be so obsessed with it as if like that's women's whole value. Right. And same for men that like all this stuff, like you got to play the game and how do you do this? It's like have a few basic skills in power dynamics, know how to have a good handshake, know how to be confident and how to walk into a business meeting and not buckle and, and how to negotiate, how to be able to walk away from something that isn't right from you. I mean, these are good values, but it's like our whole self-esteem is predicated on can women get you to want to sleep with them and can men intimidate you? And it's just like, it just seems really flawed. So again, like what I was saying is that like, I just realized that with parenting, 
they're not going to get that alternate viewpoint from anyone other than you, most likely, if you disagree with the mainstream Uh media. So, you know, we recently got rid of the TVs. Okay. And um, the reason we did that was not that I think television programming is so bad and the kids have iPads and watch on the computer, but it's deliberate. I don't think the kids need to be watching advertising. Right. And I'd like them to decide to watch something, not flick around and end up on something that brings in values that might not be even what they want. Like, I don't think, I know, like, say, my wife, like, you know, we would sometimes flick past The Real Housewives and leave it on for a minute. Yep. We don't even think of downloading it. It's like, no. we actually don't want it. No. But you can get captured by it and if I th- you are passive. Well, you it's know? interesting. It's like, I mean, I bet this is a theme I've been banging on a lot about yeah. recently, but, but because it's something, because I was always a person, again, who was like, well, you know, it's okay to have a guilty pleasure. It's all yeah. right to watch the, the Housewives or whatever and have a laugh. But the problem is, a lot of the time with television, is that you don't just watch the Housewives. You end up watching all, it's like eating junk food all the time. Yeah. Like, it's okay to eat junk food, Yeah, but you should just eat like, on a special occasion if you only eat junk food and and it's the same with your brain if you only take junk food in eventually it's you know obese and malnourished and you you know and like you said if it's there you'll watch it in the same way as if there's like a bowl of chips there you'll eat them but it might mean that you you won't necessarily go down to the shop to buy the chips that's right you have to really want it and then go and get the chips but like where I I find and you're like like, I don't really want the housewives we're not downloading that and we're like we're so entitled. Like we we speak about ourselves as if we're constantly in permanent need of a guilty pleasure and a vacation and right. junk food when we live the most convenient lives that uh-huh. have ever been lived in the yeah. history of humanity. Our entire I mean, life is a guilty pleasure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. It's like what we actually need is more hard work. Right. We actually need more concentration. We actually need to be challenged by art more than guilty pleasures. And I mean, that's a good point know, though. Yeah. And so, and I, the media yeah. as well. Cause I mean, you look at the, the state of journalism, the, the once proud tradition of journalism, which has become like, I mean, you click onto a news website now and yeah. there's barely any news because again, of this advertising model, you touched on this idea of advertising, yeah. the way the media is set up, particularly with print media at the moment or electronic print media is that stories you know that get the most click-throughs get the most advertising so it it ends up being things that have sensational headlines which are normally about celebrities they're normally misleading and the actual news the hard news journalism doesn't get click-through because you can't make that i didn't realize that's how they did it yeah that's why you see on a news all these news websites now they're predominantly just celebrity gossip rather than actual hard news or if you just read the headlines if you went back I, i no one i don't know if anyone has done this study but I've certainly just noticed that as a consumer of the media, which is that headlines just lie or misrepresent right. stories now <laughs> right. because they want you to click through. Right. And if you just took the headline you, and you didn't actually click through, you would just walk away with a completely wrong impression I of what that story is. I actually saw that today on one of the news sites. Um, there was uh, maybe, I don't know where it was, but something said four arrested in connection to Philip Seymour Hoffman's death. Yes. And I, so I clicked through. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Yep. I wonder what... Sounds like, sounds like there's a conspiracy to murder him or yeah, something. Or that, or that they actually found the dealer that did that. Yep. And the article was just about four heroin dealers had been... And it actually said there has been no connection proven with that he got his heroin yep. from there. And, he, and I was like, that's all you're saying. It was like, it's like a blatant lie. It's, it's not a- even... And I guess it's just there's no yeah there's no code of ethics in terms of how they 
sell us this stuff. So I think that you're right. Like I hadn't really thought about it until you said it, but we talk about this idea of it's a guilty pleasure or we, you know, we're just doing this thing to relax. But the truth of it is that we've got so much of that now, yeah. much like food. Yeah. Like, you know, in the way that convenience foods, processed foods were developed so that one night a week you could eat a TV meal or one night a week you didn't have to cook dinner in your busy lifestyle. Yeah. But then our convenience became every meal. There's an amazing, We wanted everything yeah. to be convenient. There's, there's an incredible philosopher and spiritual teacher called Gurdjieff from um, the – turn of the century, like 1890s to 1920s or 30s. And um, he actually said that what matters in life isn't even effort, it's super efforts. The efforts that take us beyond what we thought we were capable of, uh-huh. those are the things that lead to our progress. Right. Because everyone was like, oh, I'm putting in effort, I'm meditating 20 minutes a day. He's like, if you meditated 20 minutes yesterday, 20 minutes today is going to do nothing. It's actually in your comfort zone. You have to. He, he described an amazing analogy. He said a super effort is when someone has to walk 15 miles through a blizzard to get home to dinner. They walk in the door, dinner's on the table, and they go and walk there and back again in the snow, 15 miles there <laughs> and back before they eat the dinner. Right. Those are the efforts that transform you. Right. And obviously this is a... Also, you know, your wife will leave you because exactly. like, she just made dinner. Exactly. It was hot. Yeah. And then you went for another 30-mile walk, yeah. you fucking idiot. But, so, but look, so this is an extreme example, but the yeah. point is that we actually need to put more effort in. We don't mm. need to relax more. Yeah. We don't need to like have more convenience and more like, you know, just like it's not a party like the vacation's over and if we want to deal with if we want genius to strike we have to be prepared you know and for me the preparation is taking it seriously working hard on ourselves working hard on our families on our communities and the larger world and you know attempting to truly do something beyond that we can envision it's very interesting man so when do you think you started that journey because like did that start at age 14 and it's just been a constant process or was there a point somewhere in your life and career where you you think these you know that that state of mind that you have now these perspectives that you have became clearer to you it it was something i sort of always knew to be true meaning that like like the story i told before about bringing in the horrible thoughts Mm. before i went to bed as a kid in that i didn't like it that was not fun but I knew that if I put the effort in, it would pay off. And same with when I started a band. Like, it's hard to, man, when you're in seventh grade, try and get some other dudes to form a band and right. see how often the practices happen. <laughs> you know, like, and like, that, like the guys I chose, like best guys in the world. Yeah. No one had the instruments we needed. Like I wanted to play guitar and sing. So I picked the guy who played drums whose older brother had a drum kit. Okay, well, that's good. And Sensible. the guy to play bass who had actually made by this company that you're – um digital recorder zoom yeah. they used to make something that you could plug a guitar into that made it sound like a bass oh right so these are the guys <laughs> i chose for my band it was like it was just like the dregs of right. anything i could pull together it required so much effort and um i'm really glad i put that effort in you know because that's the other side of it that there was the delusion and all that but the delusion became grounded in reality like for you when you did go up and do the ten thousand hours on stage you know that like it was impossible and then it wasn't because right. you'd done it. And so I feel that for me, it's always been there, that idea that hard work does pay off and you have to, you're going to have to conquer fears. The whole thing's scary, but you're going to have to do it. Was there times where you thought about giving up? Has there been times where you thought about walking away from it? Because You mean career or life? 
Uh, well, I mean, okay, let's start with career. I, I think I, I did mean career yeah. when I asked you that question because I guess what I'm thinking is that, and it always sounds weird to say this out loud, but again, it, sh- it shouldn't. Like I think that if you pursue one of these lives, you feel like there's some sort of, again, it, it, to, to call it a calling makes it sound like, you know, you think you're special, right? Which, which is not what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I'm just trying to say that there is something that brings me back to comedy and makes me interested in being able to work out the world, like in the way that you're trying to work out the world through music and yeah. how you know you can put music into those situations. Yeah. The way that I try to work out the world and earn my living and you know find my place in the world is is through comedy. And I do believe it's the only thing that I was ever meant to do and it's the only thing that I ever want to do for the rest of my life. But that doesn't mean there hasn't been points along the way where I thought, you know what, maybe maybe this is just too hard. Maybe this is hurting me too much to try to do this and I, you know, maybe I should just go and do something else that I don't have to sink my entire being into and that I don't have to... I mean, you came here tonight. I was like saying that last night I had a... I had like a rough gig and it wasn't really my fault. I was like, the show I was in went really well and my role in the show just wasn't that big a role and I didn't, you know, I didn't walk away and my ego walked away from that show going, I couldn't just leave it with the fact that it was a good show that I was part of. I walked away going, everyone was better than me. And speaking of dreaming, it was in every one of my dreams last night. I had like four dreams that woke me up last night. They all had to do with failure or me not belonging or me not being in that position. So it's clearly still there even in my mind now that yeah. thing of going you know this this hurts me and I, it, like maybe i could just go away and do something else has there ever been a moment in your journey where you've thought i'm not going to do music anymore it's not, or i'm not going to do it publicly anymore many many um even as recently as when my daughter was born i thought well i don't want to tour so i'll just produce other people and write at home and but it's interesting you have a reluctance to use the term calling or vocation, and I don't know why we're scared of that in a society. I think maybe it highlights the people that claim they don't feel one. Right. Like they get all lit up and like, oh, well, I don't have any direction. And maybe we feel the need to be protective in that sense. But I, don't, I, I agree think, with you. I think not- be, uh, well, uh, to go to that point, and yeah. I think that you're right, part of it is that I think it's one of the greatest, and, you know, it has its downside, but it's one of the greatest things in life is to – like feel like you are doing something that you should be doing. Yeah. Like it really is. Yeah. And I do think that if people, you know, when you have that, you do look at people who don't have that and you, like there is a part of you that doesn't want to kind of, I don't know. But for a lot of people, I I think you and I might have experienced that in our careers, Mm. but I think we are all called, we do all get guided and doesn't all happen in career. Yeah. And I think, you know, what Joseph Campbell said is that we're each the hero of a journey. And I really believe that in that we're each called to heroic action. Uh For some people it's in their family, for some it's in, you know, feeding people. Raising a family, feeding people, doing whatever. So there is, I I do think we are all called by this higher part of ourselves. Um, but, but and, and to be honest, like even in a creative sense, the creativity doesn't exist without the super fan. Yeah. Like often like yeah. someone who's just really into it, yeah. like an audience member that gives you the permission to you know, go on the journey that you want to go on is as important yeah. as like well, their that passion process. for your work. Their even. passion yeah, yeah, make, yeah. makes your work be able to exist yeah, exactly. and it doesn't exist without them exactly. or it exists in a place that nobody ever gets to experience but, and, it. And the thing I'd say about the walking away is that 
I'm actually more interested in artists that are called than the ones that have a huge desire. And I think you only really know when you've tried to walk away. Okay. And so, you know, I think again, to use like, you know, it's so rich, all the religious symbology for these journeys. But I think that's where that saying bear your cross comes from in that you have a responsibility to do something and it might be something you don't necessarily want to do. It's nice that you say it's the greatest thing you feel to do comedy, but you might have a whole year or two where you, it's actually the last thing you want to do, but something in you is driving you to keep doing it. And I trust an artist that continually tries to walk away and can't because they're the ones whose work I want to hear. Right. Because it's something that has to come out of them against their will. Right. The ones that are young and like bands just go, we want to be the biggest band in the world. I'm like, well, I'm sure you do. Everyone right. wants to be the biggest band in the world. It's really fun. You meet pretty women, uh, you make money. And right. I still want to be the biggest yeah. band in the world. What's not to want? <laughs> What's interesting is the people that try and get away but can't. Uh-huh. Because they have something coming from within them that against all their better judgment, it would be much better to stop here. Like there was that great TED talk by, who was the woman who wrote Eat, Pray, Love? Oh, I don't know what her name is, but I know who you mean. But she did a great TED talk about the realization that her biggest commercial success is behind her. Right. And she's in her mid-30s. Yeah. And what does that feel like? You could say the same for me. I've I've had a hit. Chances are slim I'll ever have another one, not because I'm not writing good songs, but... Most people don't. Most yeah. people probably have that mo- and that moment. Yeah, like yeah, you that had that, moment. that, that moment. perfect storm for you a know, And you know, you could say the same with your TV things or radio things that like you may never get a platform like that again. And I've, I read an article the other day, <laughs> like assured you of it, <laughs> that said that really did say that my yeah. best work was well behind me. And I was like, I thought it was unfair, but I realized in their mind that yeah. was a period of time that you know that they wanted to enjoy what I was doing. Well, and it's embarrassing for us to continue in the face of that reality. And that's right. kind of what she was saying, that it's uh-huh. like very hard. But she doesn't feel she's doing this just because she wants to. Right. She feels there's a story that wants to be told. There's a bit that needs to be written. There's a song that needs to be written. And to some degree, that's when things get interesting, when it gets embarrassing. It's kind of like that, even with consuming of media. Like, you know, sometimes fans, like, you know, will get mad when, like, you know, I'll just use an example of, like, a TV show just off the top of my head. And I won't even say what this – say Game of Thrones, right? Yeah. Like, in the last season of Game of Thrones, I won't even say if people haven't seen it, but there was a thing that if people hadn't read the books – it was quite a big surprising twist and right. the internet melted down that right. day, right? It was like – and there was a lot of people, like, who were angry at, you know – but I was like, this is his world. These are his characters. And he created them. They did not exist before he created them. Mm. And they are his to do with what he likes. Mm. You know, there is, a, there is a point where I like the idea that, like, because sometimes we want our artists to stop. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, sometimes we go, you know, here's a, here's a classic example for me. Black Eyed Peas, mm. right? I still love the first Black Eyed Peas right. album. And now... There is part of me that thinks that everything they've done since then has spoiled my love right, of it. But right. the album's still great. Yeah. I can still put that album on and go, this is a fantastic album. Yeah. I don't have to listen to the other stuff. Yeah. I don't have to let that. And you know what? They're let, they made that first album and they can fucking go and do whatever they want to do. Yeah. It's their work. I just can either you decide to be part of it or not be well, part we're, of it. Well, we're again touching on this thing of can we allow things to change? Right. And that is the essence of... Anyone who has a long career or a long business 
you know, thing. They there's multiple reinventions. There's um, I mean, I heard a great story about I think it was like Bill Gates and Donald Trump and one other entrepreneur being interviewed, and they asked them, "Here's a scenario: everything crashes and you have to start again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. How do you feel?" And without exception, they were all excited. Yeah, right. And it's like that is what we're talking about. The artistry or the genius or whatever it is of that we each have, every single person has, is the ability to start again. And that's where life is. It's in the new. It's here right now. And so keeping up with it is the adventure. Uh, being in the now yeah. versus or how do you incorporate thinking of the future? Because I think a lot of the time – people mistake the idea of living in the now as hedonism or something. living as if there's no tomorrow. Whereas what I would say is you've got to try to live in the now, but the now also always takes into account tomorrow. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the, the future is actually present in the present. Well, now can only exist the way it existed because of the past. Right. So we have to realize all future nows are coming out of this moment. And again, it comes back to the effort then how are we going to create tomorrow in the way we want? It's happening now. We have to right now put in effort. So how, do you think about the future? Are you a sort of person who, like, do you think where's Ben Lee going to be in 10 years? What's Ben Lee going to be like at 50? You know, I mean, you, a little, you, like, soon, once you have kids, like, I'm, you know, you don't want to spend all your money and, what, you know, it's like right. <laughs> stuff like that you worry about. Um, right. But, but no, not too much. I've always had a degree of trust just that, the process itself will reveal that to me. You as a person, do you think of like you as a, like, you know, as in like, I would still like to be a musician, making music when I'm 60 or 70, or you just literally like it, it will, it will, it will go where it needs to go. I mean, the one thing I, I do feel and I've always felt is I've never really bought into the myth of the, of the best art happens in your early 20s. Um, oh yeah, well, and it, it makes no sense. No, to and me. I like, I really like because surely art should be telling you about the world and your experience. So surely and you the more experience better. you have, yeah. And I, this year, I've really got into Wagner, right? Like, operas, you know, uh-huh. um, and uh, and they're incredible because he did his most complex and best work, Parsifal, before he died. Um, and I've always viewed. While I certainly would not put my technical prowess or vision on the scale of Wagner. No, no, no. That's what people are taking out of this podcast. Exactly. No, I've <laughs> Did always... you hear that one where Ben Lee said he was the new Wagner? No, no, no. <laughs> no what I, but I've always believed that we should just get better and better. Uh-huh. And this is a, it's an artistry we're studying and there's no reason if you keep the fire alive in you, which is what we're discussing today, that you shouldn't stay present and do really vital, vibrant work. I, I, I think... Is that something, the, the idea that people are making their best work in the 20s, do you think that that is... It's a rock is, and roll thing. Is know, it a rock so. and roll thing? I think so. It just, again, it comes back to sex. Like, yeah. in a culture that's so dominated by sex, well, who is the most virile? Right. A, you know, a young man in his 20s, and who has the most eggs that could you could potentially fertilize women in there? You know, so it's kind of like, it's such an animal idea that for us to allow that to dominate our sense of what's possible in art seems incredibly foolish. I've always thought that Australia has a sense of youth and I think that it's in some ways emblemic of the country as a whole, like the history of the country. We're a young country, so I think that we celebrate youth. We don't... In England, like if you look at the UK, quite a lot of the time what they celebrate is experience, Mm. is history, Mm. right? And I think because our country, if you want to look at our history, 
it, you know, it doesn't. It's not particularly pleasant. What you right. know, we di- we don't have a connection with the indigenous history in Australia, and what connection we do have as white Australians is an unpleasant, like you know, history and connection that people struggle with. So I think instead of trying to celebrate history, mm-hmm. what we do is celebrate new. Right. You look at you know, you look at television. It's always full of like new people, of young people, and Australia, I think, in particular, is a country where I look around America and you see a lot of guys like you know your Letterman's and your news readers and all those sort of and they're oh, that's experience, yeah, I right? Thought about that. But in yeah. Australia on television, you don't really see 65, 70 year old people like hosting things. And I think it is a bit of our we're Australia, we're new. We define ourselves by young sports people and people doing well as like we want them to be young and successful yeah. and vibrant. Well it's interesting that I, I um I noticed this week around this whole um Jimmy Fallon, Jay Leno thing. Um the mix of feelings that it brings up for people um because you know purely on a just business level you have someone who has been number one number one and continues to be number one number one still is and that's when he's getting fired i mean Um, from his point of view yeah like it must have blown his mind that like because and and we're probably going to get into this but like jay leno's humor is not my sense of humor but the dude, it's a lot of people's. The, <laughs> yeah. Like the dude was number one yeah. for all that time, up against a dude I consider one of the greatest of all time, Letterman. Yeah. He just, he like, it's like there was another guy who kept betting Jordan all the time, yeah. right? And they got rid of him the first time when he was still number one. Like from his point of view, he must have been thinking. I've done nothing but be the most successful person at this job yeah. and make everybody rich and famous. Yeah. And then you've got rid of me. He comes back. He's number one for all that time. They get rid of him again. It's it very interesting, mind, isn't it? Right? It's like, I think, I think it, I don't know quite what, but it reveals a lot about our relationship to history and uh, development and evolution and what it means. And everyone's trying to plan, well, his viewers are going to get old and they're going to stop watching and it's up too late at night. So we've got to plan now. And um, But it also comes back to this theme that's been through this entire conversation, which is the nature of the people who don't want to change versus the nature of the people who do want to yeah, change. Yeah. And I think you would find that what they're saying about Jay Leno's audience, whether it's right or wrong, is that he has an audience of people. And the reason that some people don't respond to Leno is they think he's never changed. Yeah. He's doing the same jokes that he's always been doing, you know, it's, and Jay's comfortable. Yeah. But there's obviously a massive audience who – who don't want to be provoked. And also, who don't yeah. want to be, like, who just want to be mildly amused at that time of the night by their friend Jay. But you what know? you are saying, too, about what we're assuming, for, you know, um, what Jay Leno might be feeling or looking at as he looks right. at this situation, it, it also reveals a lot about how we might feel when we choose the secure option mm-hmm. and it doesn't pan out. Right. Because I think we've all done that. We've all tried to make the safe bet as artists and gone, oh, you know what? Like I had a thing where um, After Awake is the New Sleep did really well. I had this other project that was ready to go, but it was like a total left turn. And my label said, you know what? Just do your next album and then do that just because you've had all this success. And there was almost like a promise in it that my next album was going to be wildly right. successful if I just did it. And I kind of bought into that mentality with that be record. hard not to, I with imagine. Rap. Yeah, I was just like, well, it's just me. I'm just writing songs. I love all these songs. I'll just make the production like good and clean and put out a Ben Lab. It just, but it didn't have something. I don't know what it was. I mean, I like the record, but it didn't catch on. And now looking back, what would the difference have been? Like I may as well have just put out the one I right. wanted to. Like we make these safe choices in a sense, kind of prostituting our 
desire of what we actually want to do. And it's fine when it works out because we can go, oh, well, that's good. Now I've got the house and the swimming pool and my kids are healthy. And, you know, there are moments when we go, well, security, that was worth compromising for. But when it doesn't, the fragility of the whole system is revealed and we realize how much we've been trying to be the good little boy or good little girl for the payoff. And when it doesn't come, it's like really disheartening. Yeah, but how important is that then to, because I've got an example of this as well. I did um, like 18 months, not even two years of like uh, commercial drive radio on Triple M. Best thing that I ever did in my life for two reasons. Um, well, firstly, overall, it didn't work out. Yeah. That was the, so it gave me enough money to go off and do what I really wanted to do. Yeah. But it didn't like take five or 10 years of my life, yeah, which yeah. is what would have happened if it was yeah. successful. But also the process was so horrible that I was like, oh, no, this isn't like it reassured me that that wasn't what I wanted to right. do. And then kind of kicked me off to, you know, I started the podcast. I started doing things that I really wanted to do. Yeah. And it, reinforced in my mind sometimes you've got to go through that to go oh no 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 you know what because you could have done that next album it couldn't have worked out and you got and your your choice could have been like no i want that world i i love being in this world i'm gonna make a more commercial record next time no, that's i'm gonna true. make a poppier record next had, time but had, that wasn't your response i had an unembraced um desire to be mainstream yeah. that I hadn't really acknowledged. And what is that? That's obviously a projection of just wanting acceptance and love and believing that, well, if I make something that my whole family likes, will I really be included? And will I, you know, like all the stuff we right. bring in that no one likes to think artists are really thinking. Right. Um, but, <laughs> but I had that and I see a lot of artists have that and they never let themselves taste it. Yeah. They never let because they're so worried about another type of security, which is their like indie security. Yeah, sure. Which is, oh no, but if I do that, then Pitchfork won't write about me. Yeah, and if yeah, I yeah. do that, I won't get on the laneway festival or you know, whatever yeah. these different things are. And um I allowed myself to taste an illusion and I don't think I'm ever going to take another bite. Yeah. But I look at people that haven't and I see it's waiting. Right. Man, it is waiting. There's going to come a moment where you are going to get an offer that you will not be able to refuse. Right. And in a way, I hope it does come. Yeah. Because to leave, to live a life like that where you haven't actually tasted the thing that you're secretly dreaming of, it's very unfulfilled. And like you said, you can't really commit to where you are unless you rule out some of these other possibilities. And sometimes it's nice to know that, like you know that the that you're not a goal like you know sometimes by achieving a goal yeah the thing that i i've found a lot in life is that if you don't enjoy the process it, it's rare that there's like a goal or a yeah. thing that you get that is going to make it worthwhile and often i find the more that you get things i was it was, it was funny i was doing a little trial show i was back in sydney and it was um uh, funnily enough, it was the day that the actors were on, which is the like the, what the AFIs are now, mm. the big sort of film and television awards. Mm. And I was doing like a trial show, um, like in this tiny little Chippendale pub down in this basement, like, you know, doing this improv like trial show for my new tour. And somebody like asked me, because I was doing Q&A at the end, and somebody asked me about the fact that like, why aren't you at the actors? Right. Like, because my show was up for an award and like right. that actually host, asked me to host it. But like I was literally in this tiny little pub doing this free yeah. trial show. And I was like, you know what? I'm not disrespectful of that thing. Yeah. I won one once and I loved it. Yeah. But it was, I'm, it's done now. Yeah. I won one. I know what it's like. I didn't get any particular joy out of that. That like, like before I'd won one, I thought there was a joy. Like, I'm glad that I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it weird to say, I, I'm, yeah, I'm not no, really no, no. articulating it properly. No, Jim, but Carroll, Jim Carroll talked about this. He said, 
I hope I think in Basketball Diaries he said, I hope I can become famous just so I can cross it off my list. Right. Because to be burdened by the thought that that maybe all the happy people are over there and I'm not allowed in, that's a horrible thought. Rather get in there, check it out, see it isn't, and then move on with your life. It was interesting to me. uh, I watched a movie called Rush. It's a car racing movie. And uh, it's, you know, I watched it on the plane. It was like, but there was one thing that really resonated with me because it's the story of this like a British yeah, you know car driver James Hunt I think his name is and he wins this one world championship and then it just never ever he never ever goes on mm. and there was part of me that was like no I got it he just didn't love car racing right. like he, he wanted to win he wanted to be the best in the world once yeah. but he wasn't one of those guys who were like now I have to be the best in the world yeah. every year for the next you know yeah. seven years and I don't think either of those things are wrong by the yeah. way well, I think but we you've have, got to just be whatever you got to know what you. you are yeah like I think I've vacillated and I've been I thought I was that guy well that's important as well isn't it to, yeah. to understand that one day to the next <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can exactly. be but some days I feel like that some days I feel like that guy who's like wow I have, I've had a hit song right I mean how cool I'm in a tiny club Right. Of people that have written hit songs. Yeah. Not not to say release them even on an indie label and had enough. You know, these are like big accomplishments. Um, and and I think I'm very happy with life as it is. And um, and then other days I say, you know what? I've still got a little fight in me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not that attached to the results. Like I've put out flop records and I'll put out more. I, I've got a lot planned. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I plan on making a lot of records that no one likes or gets. Um, but I've still got a little just, you know, I've got something in me yeah. that like keeps wanting to like say, well, where can I take this? Like if you've built a plane, you want to see if it'll fly. And right. I think that's, I think that's all it is. And I think that's, you know, to quote another spiritual maxim, that's where the, you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, they say, surrender the fruit of your labors that like you're meant to do it. And you're not meant to be that worried about what happens with it. Yeah. Like work really hard make it the best it can be. Make it so it could ignite the world. Right. And then let it go and move on and do something else. It's uh, probably as nice a thought as any to finish on, I reckon. We could keep talking for hours, but, you know. My I, voice is getting tired. I'm yeah. glad you're wrapping it up. No, it's actually. good. That's no, like, perfect. <laughs> and I think that was a really nice note to finish on. Ben, it's been an, um, an absolute pleasure. No, this has fun. been – I'm enjoying this podcast. I'm yeah. really liking it. So – um. Uh, thank you very much for being part of it. I don't have any ending either. I've only well, just worked out what the start is. Maybe just the old bendashley.com, good, at Bentley Music yes, that's, on Twitter, yes, that's good. all that kind of stuff. And uh, and when will they see uh, – well, if they follow those things, they'll know when your new work's yeah, coming Yeah, I out. think the next record – it really depends how writing goes, but either near towards the end of this year or beginning of next year, new record. And then I'm I'm, I'm desperate for the musical. Yeah, that's going to be good. That's, yeah, what, yeah, I, yeah, that's yeah. what I want to see. <laughs> Cheers, mate. See you.